So that's where we are. We're in the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms is fairly easy to find. Hopefully you found it. You would, if you go to the middle of the Bible, you find yourself into the Psalms, and the royal Psalms are a subset of Psalms where the theme of which is royalty, right? That's the theme. It's talking about kingship. It's talking about, in particular, it's talking about Jesus being the king, Jesus being the Messiah. In fact, if I could, I would, um, I will, I will define the royal Psalms like this. The royal Psalms are, the royal Psalms are poetic prophecies promising a victorious future for King Jesus and his people. And so that's what they are. I, I got Michael Graham said it last week. Sometimes the Psalms are hard for me to preach and they're hard for me to, to break apart, but we're going we're gonna to get there. I've done a lot of work over the last two weeks um, getting there because I'm just not much for poetry. I've never written a poem. I wrote a few rap songs in the uh, late 90s, most of which were love odes to Luann, but nevertheless, I've never written a, song, a, a poem. I, I'd never memorized a poem past high school, and so sometimes the Psalms can be tough for me to preach, even though I find myself going to them time and time again in times of suffering. I try to read almost a psalm almost every day, but nevertheless, um, the psalms are tough. And what we have in the royal psalms are they are looking forward into the future. What the royal psalms are is as if they're almost God's like spoiler alert, right? That's language that we use whenever you're talking to someone who knows something that you don't know, the outcome of a game or the future of some series that you're watching. They may say, hey, be careful, spoiler alert, Right? And what these are, are they are God's spoiler alert. In fact, and I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert, alert in order to illustrate this. A couple of years ago, uh, Luann and I, my wife, we were, we were uh, in, on the couch. We were trying to find something to watch. And what I love to watch on TV is just whatever's next on the, on the channels. I just like to flip channels. She actually likes to watch TV. I just like to watch whatever's coming up. Like, let's keep going and find something. Surely there's something better than what we settled on. But nevertheless, we're flipping channels and we come across uh, a show uh, entitled Breaking Bad. It comes on. Now, listen, I had never seen a single minute of Breaking Bad, but this show comes on Breaking Bad. And I tell her, oh, oh, wait, 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 just a second. My friend Brian Hendricks and my friend Tony Cecil, they've been telling me about this show. It's supposed to be really good. It gets like, I don't know, 2,500 stars on Netflix. It's supposed to be like really good. Like, let's, let's just watch it. And so we begin watching Breaking Bad. Now, let me say this. This is not an advertisement for you to watch Breaking Bad. It's rough. I'm not saying that at all. But anyway, we start watching Breaking Bad, and then we do what we do when we watch TV, which is I try to enjoy the show, and Luann asks questions about the show. And again, a show to which I've never seen a single minute of the show. And so she's saying, who is this, and what's going on, and what are they doing? And I'm like, I think this is the main character. His name's like somebody white, and he was a, he was a, a high school chemistry teacher, but he gets cancer, and in order to raise money to take care of his family, he, begins, like, he becomes a, a drug lord. Like, that's the picture. That's the story of it. And so she's asking questions. We're watching this. And as the episode unfolds, it gets to the end of this, this particular episode that we're watching. And in the end of the episode, the main character, Walter White, goes inside of a, a hideout, some kind of drug lord hideout. He activates a robotic machine gun that shoots through the walls, through the middle, shoots all these people. Walter White goes outside, shows that he's bleeding, that he's been shot, and he falls over and he dies. All right? And Luann's going, 
did he just die? And I'm like, I don't know. It looks like he just died. She's like, there's no way he just died. I'm like, I think he just died. And so I text my friend Brian and I text Tony and I say, dude, I'm watching Breaking Bad because you told me to watch it. And here's what happened. And I tell them what happened. And they're like, dude, no way. You just watched the final series ender of all of the shows for you to watch. You watch and you see like, spoiler alert, you've, you've watched. And so then after seeing that, we know how it's going to end. So we got to go back five seasons, 62 episodes and start in the beginning. Now what that did for us as spoiler alert is it doesn't matter how hairy an episode got. It doesn't matter what twist and turns. It didn't matter how a season ended with a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? Ultimately, we knew like how Walter White dies, and he's going to make it all the way through 62 episodes, five seasons, and he's going to die in the end kind of on his own terms, and he's going to die in that way. And in the same way what the Psalms, these royal Psalms give to us, they are God prophetically giving to us a spoiler alert so you and I know no matter how this episode, no matter how this series, I mean, this season goes, whatever twists, whatever turns it makes, you and I know how ultimately the series of life of this earth of history ends. And so right now we're in a time where who's, our pre- who's going to be our next president? I mean, you know, some of us are still asking that question, me included. Who's going to be our next president? Let me tell you who our next president is going to be. I'm going to tell you right now, not prophetically, but confidently, who our next president is going to be. It's going to be whichever human being God has sovereignly appointed and chosen to fulfill his purposes and to advance the mission of the church. COVID-19, good grief. My friends in Hamilton got friends in Tennessee. Church is canceled because outbreak of COVID-19. How's COVID-19 going to shake out? Let me tell you how COVID-19 is going to shake out. Is the, is the vaccine going to work? Is that, I don't know that much, but I know how it's going to shake out in the end. It's going to shake out in whatever way serves the sovereign God of the universe's purposes and advances his church and does not thwart the, the, the mission of the church, which is the spread of the gospel. And you, dear believer, watching on live stream or you joined us today, you believer in Jesus, how is this present hardship going to work out? How is this suffering? How is this trial? How is this tribulation? How is this thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night, this thing that is so worrisome and it's so burdensome on you, how is it going to shake out? How is it going to work out? Let me tell you how it's going to work out. Let me tell you, let me tell you how it's going to work out. It's going to work out in whichever way works best for God's glory and your good. And that's what we have here in these Psalms. What we see over and over again in the Royal Psalms is what we saw in the storyline of the Bible. Like if there was any takeaway that you may have from the storyline of the Bible, let it be this takeaway that God has a divine plan and God's divine plan supersedes man's human plan every single time. And that's what we see in Psalm 110. He's fast-forwarding to the future. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Write that down. You may need that. It may be on the test later. It is quoted some 27 times in the New Testament. Verse number 1 of Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, verse in the New Testament, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament 
in the New Testament. So we can say this, that it is important. No doubt, if it shows up that many times in the New Testament, it is important. And what we see in Psalm 110 is we see a series of divine decrees. That's the key. You want to decipher the poem? You want to understand it? It's found in the divine decrees, and the divine decrees come as God utters things. And so you have the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, over and over, the Lord, he will, he will, he will. That's the key. Those are divine decrees that God says is going to happen. Verse number, what we have in this is originally it is written by David. It's a psalm with a, pronounced with an S, not with a palm. It's not the palmist, Mr. Biden. It's, I, I gave Trump a ton of flack when he said two Corinthians. And so we got to, give Joe Biden a ton of flack because he said the palmist. According to the palmist David, it's, he doesn't have big hands. It's, it's the psalmist. Nevertheless, originally as written, this psalm is written by David, probably at the time of his son Solomon's coronation. So there's a new king coming in. It's the king that they have inside of this because we also understand it to be inspired scripture. And what we have inside of this is David is, is listening into an inter-Trinitarian conversation. That's what's happening here. Is David is given divine ears, divine hearing, if you will, and he's hearing. I don't know that he's like not physically with his ears, but as he's writing this under the direction and unction of the Holy Spirit, as he's writing this psalm, God is revealing this inter-Trinitarian. So we talk about God, God being Father, Son and Holy Spirit, all equal, all God, yet distinct in, in nature and in being. So what is happening here is there's a conversation happening between God the Father and God the Son, and David is, the, is invited into this conversation to listen in as he writes this. Verse 1 is the main statement. It is the trump card, not just, not just, as I said, how important it is, because it's the trump card not just of the Psalms and not just of this particular Psalm. I would say it's the entire trump card of the entire Bible. If the Bible was a, a, a deck of rook cards, it's the rook that I would have and the King family would not get, but I would have the rook to throw it down. It's, it's that important. It's the rook card. And it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, a couple of things that are, that's important. Um, it's actually in this translation that we put up on the screen. It's not exactly right. It should be right in your Bibles. But the first Lord, the Lord, should be all caps, L-O-R-D. Should have caught that. My apologies. The, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, we talked about this in the storyline. Anytime that you're reading your Bible and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, in the Bible, that what that is, is that's the true name of God. That's the covenantal name of God. And it is so revered that the Hebrews, as they're writing their Bible, they wouldn't write his name in there. But what they would write is they would just simply write in the Lord. It stands for the Almighty. It would be Yahweh or Adonai or Jehovah would be ways that we could pronounce it or say it. But nevertheless, it's so revered, they don't want to say it. They don't want to write it. So they just wrote it. And then it's been translated for us as the capital, the L-O-R-D, the Almighty, says to my Lord, David writes, and that was, that's written correctly. It's my, with a capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And what it means is my master. 
The Almighty says to my master. So the question is, then who would David refer to as my master? That God would say to this person that David identifies as his master. Sit at my right hand. And so this is a picture of a a place of power. That's what it means when you're sitting at God's right hand. Sit at my right hand at this place of power. He's sitting in a, a place of influence, a place of control where kings sit. How long will you sit there until I make your enemies your footstool? So he's sitting, he's relaxing, he's enjoying it, and he's got his feet propped up. And where does he have his feet propped up? He's got his feet propped up on his enemies. It's even a, a picture, as you could think about it, as victory. As you, as you put your foot on the throat of your opponent and you press down, that's the picture that's giving here. It, the enemies of God have been defeated. It's a picture of victory in verse 1, a victory that has been appointed by God the Almighty that he's given to this, um, his master, who's this person that David calls his master. Now, I said there was a series of divine decrees, and I'm going to give you four throughout the sermon. The first divine decree is found in verses 1 and 2. And that first divine decree is, just, is this, that Jesus is the king who sits in a position of power over everything. That's the true picture. That's the true understanding. We don't have to guess at that. That's how the New Testament defines it. Jesus defines himself and identifies as the, my, as the one, the, the my master, that David calls my master. That is Jesus. Peter preaches the same thing. The writer of Hebrews uses it over and over and over again that after Jesus is crucified, Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus will spend about 40 days with his disciples. Then Jesus will ascend on high. And as Jesus ascends on high, there's New Testament prophecies like this one that tell us what happens next. And what happens next is Jesus is crowned and enthroned and coronated as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he sits at the Father's right hand in a place of power, in a place of influence. That is where Jesus is even today. Where is Jesus? I I asked this to my children growing up, and we still need to be reminded of it. Where is Jesus right this very second? And here's where he is. He's not inside your heart. That's the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' spirit. Jesus himself the, the eternal God, the God-man, where is Jesus right now? He is sitting in heaven on a throne, and what is he doing? He is reigning, ruling, and interceding for his church. That is where he is. That is what he's doing. If you were to ask the question, why did they murder Jesus? Why, did Jesus, why was Jesus put to death? Why, why would they murder somebody that was so good and did so many good things? And here's why because he bucked against the establishment, because he pressed against religion. And Jesus will be ultimately murdered on the charges of blasphemy, because he will tell them that he is God. In the final hours of Jesus' life, when he stands trial before the Jews, what Jesus will do is he will take Psalm 110, and it's almost as if he unsheathes it. It's like it's a sword, right? And he pulls it out, and then what Jesus will do is he will dice up the Jewish leaders using Psalm 110, and he will use it as a riddle. He'll ask the Jewish leaders, he'll say, hey, Psalm 110, you know it? 
You sing it. It's written in a songbook. It's in Psalms. It's scripture. It's a scripture you sing. You're familiar with it. But let me ask you a question. When David refers to, who is David referring to when he says, the Lord, we know who that is, says to my Lord, who is that? And they would have answered, well, that's Solomon. That's, who, that's, what, the, that's what it's about. It's about Solomon. And then, and then Jesus will say this. Jesus will say, like, how can he? How can David, the patriarch, the king, refer to his son, someone who is greater, of greater power, refer to someone who's lesser, his predecessor, his son, how can he refer to him as my master? He wouldn't do that. And they're kind of like, hmm, I think you're right. He wouldn't do that. And then Jesus says, that's because he's not talking about Solomon. He's talking about me. And whenever Jesus says those words, the high priest gets so angry that he rips his robes like Hulkamaniac, you know, how dare you say that? It would be as if someone was standing trial for, for some criminal activity. It would be like if someone got arrested and they, they had shoplifted from, from Target, they'd stolen a coffee pot from Target, and they're standing trial for that. And while on trial, the person, the, the person on trial says, hey, 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 I'm not guilty of stealing a coffee pot. You misunderstood what I did. I took that coffee pot because it's rightfully mine, because actually I own Target. And not just this Target, I own all the Targets that are out there. That's that's what Jesus has done. Jesus isn't being tried for just blasphemy in some generic way. It's not that he just took the Lord's name in vain. No, no, no. It's deeper, deeper than even that. What Jesus is being charged for him is he claims to be the person, my Lord, in Psalm 110, and he is that person. Jesus is the king in a position of power. Look what it says, verse number two, the Lord sends, the Lord sends forth from Zion. Zion is the holy city, the holy place of God. God, the Lord sends out from Zion, your mighty scepter. So a scepter is something that a king holds. It's an emblem of his power, of his majesty, of of his royalty. And so he's sending this out. His holy rule is going out. It's going forth from Zion. And look at this, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's a divine decree. That's a promise there that Jesus is going to rule in the midst of his enemies. This is what's taking place on the cross. Even on the cross of Christ, Christ is is accomplishing an unconventional victory in the cross. It is victory in what looks like defeat, but make no, make no guesses about it. Do not confuse it for anything other than victory because that is what it is. A number of things are happening and being accomplished in the cross. We could commonly talk about two of them under broad categories. The first thing that is being accomplished in the cross is the enemies of God are being defeated. If you have your Bible still out, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians is in the New Testament, so you have to flip over a few pages toward the back, but it's a writing of Paul, and you'll get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And if you can't find it, you know where it is? It's in the table of contents. So you look up there, and then you find the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 13. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made together, God has made alive together with him. The him is Jesus. Having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul's right there. Sin is pictured here as a debt that you owe. But you don't pay off this debt by doing good works. You pay off this debt with a blood sacrifice. That's the picture. Jesus has, is that blood sacrifice. He's paying the debt. He's canceling your debt. He's taking the debt that you've been accruing all of your life since the, since the moment you took breath, being accruing a debt that you cannot pay. But Jesus on the cross has taken that and he's ripped it up. In fact, it says, wait, he's going to nail it. It's against us with his legal demands. This set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of your wrong he has done, he's nailed it to the cross. All of your sin, he's nailed it to the cross. For those of who, us who believe in that work, who trust in that work, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. He kicked their tail. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul's saying. He embarrassed them. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The work of the cross is accomplishing two things. It is defeating the enemies of God. It is Jesus doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies, even as he dies on a cross. It's good news. When he comes busting out of that grave, they all look like fools because they put him to death on the cross. And the second thing that is happening on the cross is a people are being purchased. The enemies of God are being defeated, but also a people are being purchased. A transaction is taking place. And who are these people? We'll look at verse number three back in Psalm 110. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy, in holy garments. So divine decree number two is that Jesus purchases a people who gladly serve him. Notice that, verse number three, your people. That's a contrast to the enemies. What you have here is you have all of humanity summed up in two categories. There are the enemies of God, and then there are the people of God who gladly, freely, willingly serve Jesus. That's it. Like, let's be honest, you and I, we, what we picture in humanity is kind of a continuum, right? You've got the enemies of God, and then you've got good Christian people, we'd say good Christian people who serve Jesus and seek to do good and love Jesus and believe in Jesus. And you know what? I, most of you would say, who's not a believer, not in that category, you'd say, well, I'm really not an enemy of God, and neither am I, am I this, but I'm somewhere in the middle, right? I'm like a 4.5, maybe a 6.2, okay? On bad days, right? Black Fridays and tax days and stuff like that, I'm a 6.2, maybe a 7, but still, I'm not a 10. I'm not an enemy of God, certainly not, but neither am I. And what this text is teaching us, as well as other places, is all of humanity is summed up in either one of two categories. You, as a human being, you fit into one of two categories, and that is it. Either you are an enemy of God that he's dealing with on the cross or you are his 
person who willingly, freely, desirous of him and for his glory, you serve him. And that is it. That's the only options. That's the only choices. That your salvation is being evidenced in your willingness to serve him. You stand in opposition. So many stand in opposition to Jesus who don't want to serve him, love him, live for him, glorify him with their lives. And what Jesus does when he saves human beings is he gives them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes them born again. And from this new spirit, from this new nature, they desire to know Jesus and to love Jesus. Now, is that every day? Well, no, we all have bad days. But the general tone and tenor of our lives is not to live for ourselves. It's not to live for the pursuit of this world. It's not just to make a bunch of money, buy a bunch of toys, and then die. The pursuit of the Christian's life is to honor and to serve and to glorify Jesus Christ with every day that he gives for you to do that. And whatever job that he places you in and whatever place that he gives it to you, That's your desire of your heart. And again, it's not you drumming this up, but it's a gift of God that he changes when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you and makes you born again where you now have new desires and new longings and a complete, total, different change of disposition where you desire to know God and to serve God and you're given holy garments. Paul talks about in Ephesians, he talks about we we have garments that are stained with sin, What we need to do is we take those garments off and we put on new garments as a picture of what happens in the Old Testament through the priests, that the priests would go through ritualistic cleansing. They'd take off their old filthy garments, they'd wash themselves clean, and then they'd be given new garments, a a linen tunic, and then an ephod that they would put on. This is the same picture. Jesus saying for his people that he purchases on the cross, he changes them, he conquers their volition. As he conquers his enemies, he conquers our volition and our will, where now we will and we desire. Why the Bible could say, whosoever will, let him come unto me. It's a work of the Spirit that draws him, drags him to the Father, and a change of disposition where we desire him and want to know him. And then he clothes us with royal garments, holy garments in him, clean garments. And that's the Christian life every day of you getting up, taking off the the clothes that you stained up yesterday and putting on new royal, holy, priestly garments. Back to the psalm. Got a few minutes left. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. No idea what that means. No idea. Nobody does, I don't think, really. Uh, It's Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. There's some of it we know, verse 1, we can say confidently because the New Testament um, explains it for us, but there's other places we got to go, hmm. I think it has something because the words, like notice you notice from the, the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Uh, there's definitely language about being young. And so what I, what I believe that the psalmist means by this is your reign, your rule will never, tra- it will never expire. You're not going to grow old is what he's going to say. Like other kings, even David, David grew old. See, David is writing this as an old, frail, about to die man. And what he's saying is this new king that's going to come in, he's not going to age. He's not going to get sick. He's not going to die. He's going to be perpetually young, as, as it were. He's going to keep on keeping on is what it says. And so what he's saying is your reign, your rule will be for all of eternity. 
think that's probably pretty accurate. But then notice also what he says, number four, verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Think about that. God's decreed it. He's purposed it. He's not going to change his mind about this thing. And look at what he says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Divine decree number three is Jesus is a priestly king exercising an eternal universal priesthood. There's a shift in the text. It goes from looking at Jesus as a king to now they're looking at Jesus as a priest, right? Jesus is this priest. That's clues. We know that it's not just Solomon that David is writing about because Solomon was just a king. He never fills the role or the office of a priest. But now this, my Lord, this, my master, Jesus will have, will uphold two offices, dual offices. He will be both a king and he will also be a priest. And it's a priest after the order of this man by the name of Melchizedek, international man of mystery, Melchizedek. He's mentioned in the Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis 14. He's mentioned in um, here in Psalm 10. And then the writer of Hebrews loves this character of Melchizedek, and he writes a ton about Melchizedek. So in Genesis 14, what you have is you have this man by the name of Abram, and Abram has been called of God out of, out of paganism. He's been called to God, and God is leading him on a journey throughout his life. He's made promises to Abraham. And you have this one incident where Abraham has to go into battle, and he has to fight. And after Abraham fights and Abraham wins, Abraham, it says, these kings come out to greet Abraham and to bless them. And among these kings is this one guy by the name of Melchizedek. And the Bible describes him as both a king. He's the king of Salem. Okay, he's the king of Salem. And it also says he is a priest of the most high God. So you have this guy that's Melchizedek that comes out of nowhere that, first of all, is a king. And then it says of Salem. And Salem is, it means peace in the Bible. So he's the king over the city or the region of peace, like Jesus is the prince of peace. And he's not only that, though, he's a king. But not only is he a king, the Bible declares him to be a priest, and not just a priest of some pagan generic priest, but he's a priest of the Most High. And it's like, wait a minute, I thought Abraham was the only believer in the earth at this point. It's like, no, 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 no. God's always got people that you don't even know about. That's one that they're saying there. In fact, here's this guy that he's a king and he's a priest and he goes out and he meets Abraham to bless Abraham, right? And here's how he blesses Abraham. He takes Abraham two things to bless him with, bread and wine. Kidding me? You can't make that stuff up, right? That's God's decrees. That's God's plan. He brings to him bread and wine to bless Abraham, and Abraham in turn wants to serve God, the God, this high priest. He wants to serve. So he gives a tithe. He gives an offering to Melchizedek in order to honor the Lord in that. He gives a tithe, of, like I think the first tithe, 10, 10, you know, 10% of all of his belongings, of everything he's got, he gives it to Melchizedek. And what the writer of Hebrews says, some like eight times, the writer of Hebrews, he loves him some Psalm 110. He quotes Psalm 110 three times and he alludes to it eight times in the book of Hebrews. And what he says is Melchizedek is foreshadowing Jesus in this. He's foreshadowing Jesus because Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is both a king and a priest. And think about Jesus at the Last Supper. 
as he holds up? How is Jesus blessing his people? What's the picture of that? That you and I were going to participate, those of you in person or those of you prepared on the live stream, at the end of the gathering, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And what are the elements of the Lord's Supper? Jesus' body that's broken, symbolized in bread. Jesus' blood that is spilled, the blessings of God, symbolized in juice or in wine. Melchizedek is doing that. That's why he says, You're, Jesus, you are in the order of Melchizedek. Your priesthood had no beginning. We don't even know how it began, and neither will it have any ending. You're ordained of God, anointed of God, brought up of God, and you serve as both a priest and a king, but that's important for us as well. See, when we say Jesus is king, the next question that should follow is, well, what kind of king is he? We could talk about royal leaders and and governmental leaders throughout history or throughout current events, and not all of them are all that nice. Not all of them are all that kind. Not all of them are that affectionate or compassionate or sympathetic, right? I can ask you, I know everybody in here, you have a father, but I don't know what kind of dad you might have had. Because, hey, I've got a father. Well, that's obvious you're here, right? But what kind of dad did you have? Was he a good dad, a bad dad? Was he a compassionate dad, a kind dad, an available dad, an encouraging dad? What kind of dad did you have? In the same way, we know that we have Jesus as king but his role as a priest defines his heart to us. He's a priest in that he understands and he sympathizes with our weakness. It's where we get to do our commercial for this book. We know the heart of Jesus, what Jesus is like towards sinners like you and I, then here's a fantastic book for you to read. We've talked about it in the past. We'll talk about it again. It was on sale, probably not anymore, probably Black Friday. You missed it, but it's worth every penny that you can read. It's on my must-read list now. It's the best book I read in 2020 outside the Bible. It's Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Fantastic book, and it tells you about what is Jesus like? What is his heart like? This book defines that for us. Right now, Jesus is, what I say, where is Jesus right now? He's reigning, and he's ruling, and he's interceding. He's interceding for us. His vocation is that of a king, but what kind of king is is he? Well, he's priestly, he's sympathetic, he's understanding, he's kind, he's approachable, he's available, he's loving, and he's gracious. He's an interceder for us. He's a mediator for us. John writes in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. How you doing on that? I need to go back and read 1 John again. If it didn't leave, he's writing so he don't sin. I find myself sinning. I find myself to be a sinner before the Lord. But then John goes on. I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord, making intercession for us. In fact, he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous The scene shifts again in verses 5 through 7. No longer are we in God's throne, but we're now on a battlefield. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That's Jesus. Wait, wait, I thought he was like the Lamb of God, right? I thought he was like the long-haired, bearded, 
you know, look like a hippie guy petting a lamb. No, 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 no. This is Jesus. When Jesus returns, he is going to execute God's just judgment among the nations, and it will look like death, bloodshed. He's going to fill the nations with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The scene shifts to a battlefield. It shifts from the book of Hebrews to now Revelation, and in particular, Revelation 19, verses 11, uh, verses 11 through 16. And at the second coming of Jesus, he will forcibly subdue his enemies and finally establish his kingdom rule. Verse number seven is a poetic way of making the point that Jesus will carry out this judgment swiftly and that none will escape. What was happening in verse number seven, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The picture would be as if there are those who are trying to escape Jesus' just judgment and their rightful death, and Jesus is hunting them down. And on the way, he stops and he's refreshed by the brook. And then he lifts up his head in victory. It means that Jesus will gain a swift and total victory over his enemies. Again, who were those enemies? Those who opposed his reign and his rule. Those who do not want to volitionally serve him, know him, glorify him. Those are his enemies. And he's giving a total victory over his enemies when he returns and none will escape. None will escape. Close out our time with just one, two, three, four summary statements of how we can respond to Psalm 110. The first one is this, since Jesus is king, we believers, emphasis on believers, should approach the future confidently. We should have hope. You and I, because we know, because we know how the season um how it ends, right? That's what I'm trying to say. We know how it ends. That means you and I in this episode in our hands. We don't need to fret. We don't need to freak out in this episode because we ultimately know in this episode, King Jesus reigns and rules even in this episode because in the series, uh, what am I trying to say? Right? Finale. No, still not right. This is Welcome to Kentucky right here. In the series end, Jesus wins. Thank you for your grace. We know that. We know that. Jesus never jumps the shark. Doesn't get bad. Series doesn't end in a bad way. Jesus continues on. Number two, since Jesus is king, that means we should submit to his lordship willingly. submit to Jesus willingly. It's a sure thing that every knee is going to bow before Jesus. Every knee will bow. That's the promise of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. It's the promise of Scripture in the book of Philippians. There's coming a day when every knee will bow. And either, either you bow before Jesus in worship to receive salvation, or you bow before Jesus in judgment, and receive condemnation, and that is it. All of humanity will stand before him. 
Next, since Jesus is, is a priestly king, we should receive his mediation gladly. Jesus is the mediator, the go-between between you, me, God. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is there pleading his blood as the just satisfaction for the penalty of our sins that we, you and I, we no longer need to feel condemned before God because Jesus is our priest. We're invited to confess our sins to him and to appropriate his cleansing. Remember, when the enemy accuses you, you can overcome him by pleading the blood of Jesus, reminding the enemy that is forgiven. He's nailed it to the cross. He's pardoned you. No longer have that debt. And even more than that, Jesus' intercessor means that right now Jesus is praying. He's praying for us. He's praying for his church. You and I, we can appropriate Jesus' mediation gladly and often. And lastly, since Jesus is a warrior king, you and I, we should avoid his judgment hastily. Today, we live in a day of grace. And it would be easy for us to dismiss Jesus' just judgment because it is delayed. Perhaps you're even here this morning, you're thinking, you know what, I still have some time. I don't see God judging anybody. I don't see him judging me. So what's the big hurry? Besides that, isn't God the God of love? And you know what? I'm a pretty good person. God wouldn't judge me, would he? That is an eternally fatal flaw in logic and in reason and in discerning what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. This isn't just like, oh, you know, the book of Revelation. I don't know that it should be in there. No, it's over and over and over again. As I said a couple of weeks ago, whole chapters of Jesus' teaching deal with his second coming. And every one of them, Jesus speaks about it being a fearful day for those who have yet to receive him, for sinners that stand in opposition to him. So this morning, I pray that we would respond correctly with repentance and reflection, thinking about our lives. Dear Christian, is there any place in your life where you're not willfully submitted to Jesus? That's what it means to be a Christian. We're not the ones that get it right, not on the first time and generally not on the second time either. We don't always get it right, but we're the people that the Holy Spirit is abiding in us, using God's word. He's illuminating all of the places in our lives that we're living in opposition to Jesus. He's calling us to deeper and deeper submission to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. Every place that is incongruent to the declarations of the gospel, every place in your life that's incongruent with the holiness that God has provided to you, you think about those things and then you repent and you return and you, ter- and you turn from them and you ask the Lord to forgive you of them. That's what repentance is for us to reflect, even as we do today, as we think about in the same way that Melchizedek came and he blessed Abraham, one called out of the world, called to God, called to serve God, called to follow God, made promises by God. And then this God sends this one that comes and brings the blessing of God to that person. And in the same way, you and I, we get to reflect on the blessing that God has provided in the person and the work of Jesus, summed up in a picture of bread and blood. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've loved us enough that you tell us the truth. You tell us the truth about ourselves. You tell us the truth about your son. 
You tell us the truth about what's required of us. You tell us the truth about what your son has done for us. You tell us the truth about what you want to do in us and with us. And you tell us the truth so that we can have hope, not be anxious in this moment of how it's all going to end. It's all going to end. Final episode. Series ends with you, Jesus, reigning and ruling over everything. Even as you do now, as you as you exercise a spiritual reigning and ruling, you will do that physically in the new heavens and new earth. We long for that day. I pray for my brothers and my sisters that are here in this room and those that may be joining us on the live stream that in every place of disobedience, disobedience, that we would bring an insubordination, that we would bring it to submission as you illuminate that in us. Every place of pride, anger, frustration, and anxiety. We bring it into the obedience. We bring it under the lordship of you, Jesus. There'd be great trust for us in these times, Lord. That we trust you in these times. And Jesus, for those who have yet to ask for the forgiveness that you offer, for those who have yet bowed their knee in worship to you, Pray that this would be the day of salvation. They would repent. It's in your name we pray. Amen.